Hey, it's Luke. Listen, before we get to this week's episode, I need to ask you a very quick favor. Can you believe we have been producing Livewire for 11 years and we've been able to share work from emerging artists, people like Tomo Nakayama and Sarah Benincasa, and also through Livewire, we've been able to showcase established artists, people who already are pretty well-known, folks like John Roderick, folks like Fred Armisen. This podcast, while it's free for you at this moment, as you're, if you paid somebody for this podcast, you got hustled. This is supposed to be free, what you're hearing right now. But it does cost us money to put it together, and so we are hoping, and this is where the favor comes in, that you can help us keep producing this podcast and keep making it something that is, in fact, free of charge. And this is how you can do that. If you could chip in $10 through our Give Guide campaign, that would be so great. That's like 40 cents per episode, which is about a tenth of a latte. Because this is public radio, we have to use a latte as our mathematical unit for just about everything. Here's how you can do this. There is a website, giveguide.org slash hashtag livewire. If we raise enough money this year, we won't have to have such a shitty web address next time. That's giveguide.org. That part's great. It's the slash hashtag livewire that I think may be challenging, but we're going to ask you to take on the challenge. Again, that address, giveguide.org slash hashtag livewire radio. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and thank you for supporting Livewire. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire Radio. We are backstage in Portland, Oregon, and we have a really fun show coming up for you. Writer Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz is here, also music from Deep Sea Diver, and this guy, one of the funniest people I know, Hari Kondabalu. Hari, this show that we're doing is about underdogs. I'm wondering, when have you felt most like an underdog in your life? Well, one, brown person in America, that's an easy one. Uh, that's really just a lifestyle. That's a right, right. <laughs> being an underdog. Being an right? underdog. I grew up uh, in Queens, right? They you go, were the underdog borough. We were the underdog borough. You go to Queens when you want to leave New York. Uh, so there, there's, and I'm a Mets fan and uh, in, a, in a Yankees town, and that makes me an underdog. You actually may have too much underdog for this show. You may overwhelm <laughs> everything else happening on stage with right. your sheer underdoggedness. I might just perform in the audience. That would be the most underdog move we've ever seen. All right, well, let's get out there on that stage and, and do this radio show. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Yes, it's Livewire Radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon with stand-up comic Hari Kondabolu, author and poet Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, and music from Deep Sea Diver. All that, plus comedy from our troupe, The Overdogs, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Hundley. And now, the host of Livewire, Underdog Magazine's two-time man of the year, Luke Burbank! Wow, thank you so much. And to think you did all of that without us flashing an applause sign at you. I mean, that's why it means so much. Thank you, everybody, for being here. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. Uh, We've got a great show coming up for you. The theme to this hour is underdogs. And I feel like this is a topic that I have spent about 38 years getting ready to talk about with you. Because, as you can tell, as a straight white man, it has been hard for me not being objectified, not being pulled over by the cops, even when I really deserved it. And yet I've, I've managed to overcome all of that to stand on this stage in front of you. And um, you know what? Hold your applause. That's fine, actually. That'll, we can get through it quickly. Just email me your thoughts later about my story of perseverance. This is the thing, though, right? No matter who you are, you've always, at some point, everybody has felt like the underdog. I think for me, it was growing up in this family of seven kids, and we didn't have a ton of money, and I always felt like I was sort of a fashion underdog, (laughs) right? Because when you're a kid, you just want to try to fit in. You just want the clothes that seem similar to the clothes the other kids are, are wearing, and my mom was not into getting those clothes for us because <laughs> you had to go to a clothing store to get those, and that was not where she shopped for clothes. This was mostly rummage sales. And she would go when they were at fill-the-bag status 
which was basically there getting you to pay them to take away the crap they couldn't sell to anybody else. And this was how my wardrobe came together. It wasn't a money thing, though, exclusively. There was another problem with my sort of fashion IQ, and that was that my parents would intermittently homeschool me during my childhood. So, like, I didn't go to first grade. I didn't go to sixth grade. And these years that I wasn't in school were a real kind of fashion blackout <laughs> for me. So I'm getting ready to go to my first day of seventh grade at North Seattle Christian Junior High School, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to wear, and I get my hands on these jeans, these jeans that I think are really going to send a message the first day of school, which is I'm a normal kid, just like the rest of you. I haven't spent the last year listening to Christian talk radio and trying to get my mom to order us a pizza. <laughs> and these jeans were, they were acid wash. They fit, I thought, pretty well. And there was one problem, it turned out, which is that they had black stirrups on the bottom. They were actually stirrup <laughs> jeans meant for a uh, female to wear. And this was pointed out to me by a really helpful guy um, <laughs> about 10 seconds into walking into the classroom. And I was pretty bummed. I, I went home and... I was, I was first, I was kind of embarrassed, as you would imagine, but I was also sad because I liked these jeans and I just felt like <laughs> we're focusing on one part of the jeans that didn't work, which was the stirrups. <laughs> uh, so I realized, oh, they're just made out of like spandex. You cut those off, you got a perfectly good pair of jeans. So that's what I did. I cut the stirrups off and I wore the jeans to school the next day. And the same guy was like, Hey, are those those girls' jeans you've been wearing? And <laughs> I made a bold decision. I looked at him and I said, no, these are different jeans. And an amazing thing happened. He completely believed it. Um, which taught me a life lesson, which is that kids are idiots. Like, they will believe anything. What are the chances I have two identical pairs of acid wash jeans? One of them is stirruped and the other isn't. <laughs> But this is what I learned about being the underdog, is that sometimes when you find yourself in the underdog position, you have to just hold your head high, look someone directly in the eyes, and lie to their face. <laughs> so that's just a free life lesson right here at the uh, top of the show. Let's get rolling with this. I am really excited about this next person coming out. The New York Times called him one of the most exciting political comics in stand-up today. He's also been called by far the funniest person to graduate from the London School of Economics ever. Uh, that was just by me, because I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, he's been on Letterman, Conan, Jimmy Kimmel, and every podcast that has ever existed. His first comedy album, Waiting for 2042, was released this year. Please welcome my pal, Hare Kondabalu, to Live Wire. Um, it's, very, uh, it's very nice to be here. I've had an interesting year. I've gotten to perform on Letterman and Conan, and I was on... Uh, uh, NPR's uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Some of you know who I am now. And um, <laughs> it's been great. And, and part of it is because all these things are very legitimizing, which is, which is strange to say, but, but it feels necessary uh, because I don't think people respect stand-up comedians. They don't see this as an art form. They don't think stand-up comedy is a real job. And I know this because people ask me what I do for a living, and I tell them, I'm a stand-up comedian. And then they'll say, oh, <laughs> oh. Not knowing how to digest that information. It's as if I said, I'm a scarecrow. Oh. You can do that for, okay. okay. Uh, I know I'm in Portland, Oregon, so I hope I didn't offend anybody. Um. I'm worried at this point that one of you will stand up and say, excuse me, but I'm a scarecrow. Yes, it is sustainable here. I get paid with quinoa and beets. It's obviously freelance. Yeah. 
Uh, I'll tell you this now. They love that joke in Seattle, by the way. <laughs> yeah, get him, Harry, get him. We want a television show, too. It's not fair. We're bigger. Why did everyone forget the 90s? The country's changing. I don't think some people are prepared for it, especially around, like, gay marriage. Like, people freak out about gay marriage, which I I don't understand why anybody would be against gay marriage, right? Because it's about freedom, right? My point of view is that everyone has the right to compromise their dreams for someone else (laughs) and die alone, right? That is a God-given right. It's interesting how people try to use religion to justify homophobia, but they don't really have a strong argument. Like, I still hear people say, you know, it's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve. Biblical scholar, right? (laughs) Technically, that is true, though. It was Adam and Eve. But if you remember the story, it was Adam and Eve and a talking serpent. I feel like the talking serpent throws the whole account into question. I'm not sure how true this is. There's a talking snake involved. Maybe you shouldn't base your values on a Jungle Book type scenario. What would Baloo do? Look, I'm an Indian Hindu. I know about Jungle Book-type scenarios. That's a Jungle Book-type scenario. Uh, I released an album on, uh, on Kill Rock Stars, the indie label, earlier this year. Um, it's called uh, Waiting for 2042. Uh, for those of you who don't know, 2042, according to census figures, is the year when white people will be the minority in this country. And uh, I'm waiting for it. Um, <laughs> The album cover is amazing. It's me on the back of a bicycle rickshaw being driven by an old white dude in a business suit. It's a, it's a bit, like, I want that etched on my gravestone, you know, because that is what will get me killed, I think. <laughs> what inspired the album cover uh, was I was, out, I was at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, and they have all these bicycle rickshaws being driven by white dudes. I'd never seen that before. So I got into the back of one, and this guy's like, where do you want to go? And I'm like, I don't care. Take me as far as you can take me. My grandmother in India would not believe this. My grandson's made it, he's made it. This is some weird kind of colonial justice. White dude powered bicycle rickshaws are my preferred form of transport, to be honest. I would take that all over the country if I could. Hurry, you got a gig in San Francisco next week. No, it's gonna have to be next month. I'm going by rickshaw. White dude-powered bicycle rickshaws. It's the only white power I believe in. (laughs) Now, uh, I did... (laughs) I did that uh, that joke on uh, NPR's All Things Considered Weekend Edition with Arun Roth. And uh, the interview went really well, and, and I told that story. And afterwards, I got a hate mail. And... Let me first say, NPR hate mails are very unique. Uh, The grammar is perfect. Just got through listening to an interview on 90.5 about your album 2042 and was very offended by your comments. It seems we have some reverse racial discrimination going on. I don't know what that means. Like, I, that's not a thing to me. That's like saying, sir, I believe in magic and think you should learn magic as well. No, that's not real to me. That's okay. Don't worry about it. You keep your beliefs to yourself. They're not real. Okay. Don't forget, once the Obama dollar becomes even more devalued, didn't know he was on a bill yet. Um, no one will be the winner and you will not be able to grin and say, I've made it. By the way, I listened to your music, and you were a disgusting, no-talent little (laughs) Now, to be fair, if you listened to my album thinking it was music, (laughs) you have every right to be disappointed. Thank you very much. Hari Kondabalu, ladies and gentlemen. 
Hi there, Hari. Hey, man. How are you? Um, what do you think 2042 is actually going to look like? Um, well, you, you really want to know? Yeah. Well, um, look, I don't know if you all frequent the same forums on the internet that I frequent, right? But and I don't know if this will get me killed. But the reason why the majority in this country will be brown is that white people will be on Mars. <laughs> and so... Yes, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the ship will be sinking. So yeah. really, the numbers are, are mm-hmm. you know, it's not looking good for what us. What role uh, do the Illuminati and the Obamunists play <laughs> in this space travel? <laughs> A major role, I assume? Well, well yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, uh, Obama mm-hmm. is not a Muslim. That's ridiculous, right? But he is an alien. And he is here to bring the white people to Mars. I mean, look, look, I realize that this is uh, more of an NPR audience and not like, you know... Coast to Coast with George Norrie. Right. (laughs) That's the other show I host. When I'm done here, I drive down to a small RV in Clackamas. (laughs) And... uh, Talk about remote viewing for four hours. Uh, so this show, Hari, is we're, we're, we're theming it underdogs. Mm-hmm. And you're such a smart guy. And you went to the London School of Economics. You were an organizer in Seattle. Right. You've been very uh, active in social causes and in, in a lot of issues of justice. Do you, you, you stick up for underdogs in your comedy a lot. Do you have any jokes, though, that are just they don't have any social message, they're just things that crack you up, that basically have no nutritional value. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You mean filler? Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) No, sure. I mean, I had a a, a bit on my album that's like six minutes bashing the rock band Weezer, um, which is... I have a recurring stress dream that... I'm listening to Pandora, and I'm out of skips, and all the songs are from Weezer's, like, last four oh, albums. Oh, God. Yeah, that's... You don't even need to leave a suicide note. They'll yeah. just see your playlist and know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's a joke that doesn't have any important right. social <laughs> message, right? <laughs> Uh, well, Hari Kondabalu, congratulations on Thanks. all the success. Congratulations on the new album. It's called 2042. Thanks for coming on LiveWire. <laughs> Hari Kondabalu, ladies and gentlemen, right here on LiveWire. You are listening to LiveWire Radio, the Hoosiers of public radio variety shows. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, maintaining relationship with local growers to offer customers organic produce free of pesticides. Whole Foods Market, keeping you from growing a third ear. Because ears are weird, and two is probably more than enough. More information at eataspromised.com. We will be right back. The LiveWire podcast is sponsored by Ergo Depot, letting you know you don't have to feel guilty for sitting all day, largely because you don't have to sit all day. Studies show that getting up and moving around for even a few minutes every hour makes a huge difference for your spine and cardiovascular health. Also, if you're away from your computer screen, it's significantly harder to Facebook stalk your ex. So that's kind of a win-win. To find furniture that improves your back health and your psychological health, visit ErgoDepot.com. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio from PRI. We're talking about underdogs on the show this week. And, and one of the most common places where you experience the whole underdog plotline is in sports movies. And so we decided to send our own Andrew Harris deep into the world of underdog movies to see what he could learn. Andrew, what did you find out? Thanks, Luke. Yeah, this has been a really tough assignment, but I dug really deep and I watched like three and a half underdog movies, okay, ranging from the Bad News Bears to like 35 minutes into the Mighty Ducks. That sounds thorough. Um, 
<laughs> what did you learn? Well, the more I watched, the less I liked the underdog teams because, you know, like every story is the same. Some group of really talented football or hockey or baseball players, uh, and let's just call them the juggernauts, okay? They face off against this group of ragtag losers who only just started playing, and for some reason, we're supposed to root for the team that isn't any good at playing sports. That's because everybody loves a Cinderella story. Yeah, right. But why? I mean, okay, like there's always this big football game and the ragtag losers, they have like some computer nerd who comes up with some cheap, you know, cheating play at the last minute in the fourth quarter and it works. But you know, you know where the juggernauts learn their plays? Practicing football. (laughs) You know, like every day, like staying up till two in the morning, like reviewing their footage of their plays you know, and meanwhile, the ragtag losers, like, they eat Funyuns and play D&D and, you know, go LARPing and, and you know, and yet, and, you know, and, and at the last minute, they find some cheap cheating workaround. Okay, but that's not really the, You know, and then like, there's plot. always this kid who, like, works at a bakery and he catches baguette, so, of course, they make him the wide receiver. <laughs> you know, and then there's, like, this farm boy who's really good at blocking because he's the one that stands there when the baby cow comes out and, like... <laughs> baby cow like hits him in the chest and so oh let's make him like you know the nose guard you know and why do we prefer that to people who actually practice because they're like combining their talents in an unexpected way it's very beautiful actually. yeah but the other team actually knows how to play the game okay <laughs> they combine their talents into a graceful display of skill and physical prowess that is a joy to watch yeah but you gotta think about it this way society wrote the other kids off Right, good point. But we wrote them off as football players, okay? Who cares if they can play football? That nerdy kid, he's going to come out of college, he's going to make 80K a year being a computer programmer, okay? He's going to be fine. Okay, but we don't want him playing football because he's probably going to suck at it. Okay, uh, I guess. You know what, Luke? If you think uh, it's so great when people are bad at their jobs, here, why don't you just... No, yeah, yeah, let me just take let me just take this. Hey, blah blah blah, I'm a radio host. Yeah. Hey everybody, like me. Like I worked at a radio shack once and I wrote a computer program that makes me talk like this like a robot. So so root for me and hate Luke. Blah blah blah. Like. That's not how I sound. This is Livewire, by the way. I have control of the microphone again. Andrew Harris filing his last report. I really need to be briefed on what the reporters are going to do before they come out here. Singer and multi-instrumentalist Jessica Dobson formed Deep Sea Diver while playing guitar for bands like The Shins, Beck, and The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. Their latest EP, entitled Always Waiting, was called As Kinetic As It Is Well Crafted by radio station KEXP. Please welcome Deep Sea Diver to Livewire.
right on. That's Deep Sea Diver here on Livewire. A New York Times bestselling author and poet, Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz's latest book is about a man who surrounded himself with, you could say, underdogs. Dr. Mooter's Marvels is the first ever biography of Dr. Thomas Dent Mooter. He was the flamboyant father of modern surgery. He was known as the P.T. Barnum of the operating room due to his willingness to operate on people the rest of the world considered to be freaks. Please welcome Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz to Livewire. All right, uh, Kristen, let's start with this guy, Dr. Thomas Dent Mooter. How did you first hear about him? I grew up in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, if, uh, people know the name Mooter typically because of the Mooter Museum, which is a museum of 19th century medical oddities. Uh, they have things like a woman who grew a horn from her head, the uh, conjoined liver of Changanang, and a nine-foot colon, uh, a human colon that was extracted from a man known as the human balloon. And uh, they actually, it's such a popular part of the museum that they now sell plushy megacolons, so you could take it home with you. Uh, people use it. That's as, a great gift for the like holidays, a, by yeah, the way. Perfect for Hanukkah. Um, yeah. And uh, so I went there when I was a kid. They, uh, for some reason, Philadelphians think exposing children to nine foot colons is going to help promote healthy scientific exploration. Well, it really worked with you. You went and wrote a damn book about the guy. <laughs> yeah. Then they realized that no, nobody really knew who the man was who founded the museum. They just knew about his collection. I actually uh, put myself through college and they had a scholarship for the best screenplay or play for the scientific discovery or the life of a scientist. And I thought maybe there's something there. And that was 15 years ago this past December. So it has been a long journey of for this you book and to Dr. Mooter. Yeah, a lot of awkward conversations for my mother, really. <laughs> I have to say, I loved this book. It was also incredibly hard to read at times because of the descriptions of what surgery was like right. in this country, particularly before um, they had, you know, an- anesthetic for things. And that was where he started out, right, in, in, in right. those days. Yeah, before, before anesthesia was discovered in the mid-19th century, in 1846, um, essentially they would just, they had men who were paid to just hold you down onto the table because he specialized on working on severely deformed people in a time before anesthesia, um, which would, you would think would make him a sadist. Uh, but in reality, he was hugely compassionate and empathetic and sought out these people who were medically considered monsters in their time period, just like idiot was also a medical term. And and he was sort of like one of the first plastic surgeons, which has kind of a bad name <laughs> yeah. now in our, our current right. society. But back then, I mean, he was doing like saving people's lives in a way because he was making so they could actually go out in public and be around other people, right? Right. Plastic, you know, we now think of it as like boob jobs and lip augmentation, but plastic literally means malleable and it means using the human body um, and, and manipulating it to help overcome deformities or disfigurements that were caused by birth or accident. And he saw these people, realized no one was working on them, and devoted his life. And uh, and it's uh, the book has over 80 illustrations throughout it, and all of the woodcut illustrations, some of which are pretty disturbing, are all of Mooter's actual patients. Um, could you read a little bit from the book <laughs> to uh, illustrate and... Um... I apologize to anyone who ate dinner. Yeah. Uh, well, it's more like it's breakfast in Indiana as somebody's <laughs> listening to this. So This is not the most stomach-churning section, but okay. this is about uh, he decided to put out a textbook. He was sort of largely ignored. His ideas were very uh, forward-thinking, and so he decided the way to get his ideas out were to, was to co-write a textbook. So it says, Mooter eventually caught the attention of a British publishing house, which was releasing what they hoped would be the definitive surgical textbook of the famous British surgeon Robert Liston, known as the fastest knife of the West End, again in a time before anesthesia. Liston, like Mooter, was a colorful figure in surgery. He was tall, ambitious, and charismatic, often yelling, time me, gentlemen, time me, to his students before beginning his amputations. <laughs> Although Liston was renowned for his success stories, such as the removal of a 45-pound scrotal tumor in four minutes... Prior to the operation, the poor patient had been forced to carry a scrotum around in a wheelbarrow. 
He also developed a reputation for the flamboyancy of his surgical failures. For instance, his joy at amputating a patient's leg at the thigh in less than three minutes was hindered greatly when he realized he had also inadvertently sawed off the patient's testicles. And perhaps most famously, another leg amputation performed in less than three minutes while the patient was awake had the unfortunate result of killing three people. The patient who survived the surgery died of gangrene several days later. His young assistant who was holding the patient down and had his fingers accidentally sawed off during surgery who had also succumbed to gangrene. And, quote, a distinguished surgical spectator whose coattails Liston had also slashed. The man who found himself surrounded by geysers of blood was so convinced the knife had pierced his vitals that he immediately dropped dead of fright it was later described as the only operation in history with a 300% mortality rate. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> that, that's Obamacare for you. <laughs> America's going to turn into, man. Exactly. Um, that's Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. Her book is Dr. Mooter's Marvels. It's a biography of this guy, Dr. Thomas Dent uh, Mooter. I'm endlessly fascinated with some of the lengths that this guy went to to try to make this really horrendous thing, particularly, again, before they got the anesthetic, make this horrendous thing a little less horrendous for his patients. Like, he would... He was going to do a face surgery on somebody. He would, like, massage their face for two weeks before right. the surgery. He believed in preoperative and postoperative care, which was unheard of. Uh, before his, his, uh, he came into science, when people uh, performed surgeries, they were sent home in uh, unwashed uh, horse carriages over the cobblestone streets of Philadelphia. And if you've ever been on a cobblestone street, you know that's unpleasant, and that's in a rubber tire filled with air and not uh, behind a flatulent horse. Uh, but Mooter and Excellence is really just insult to injury at that <laughs> point. Is. Bermuda insisted on opera, uh, on recovery rooms, and when they refused to let him build recovery rooms, he actually just rented uh, a floor above a restaurant and just stuck his patients in there. So he was hugely committed. He was painfully sympathetic uh, to his patients, and I admire him so greatly, and I feel so honored to be the one to finally be sharing his story, which has been sort of hidden for 150 years. And he did the face massaging because he felt it would, like, deaden the nerves or something? Yeah, if you imagine, I'm not sure if you've ever just stuck your finger in your mouth uh, for a long period of time. Uh, kind of makes you upchuck, as we said in the 80s. Uh, and he would be doing cleft palate surgeries where he would literally be stitching together the soft palate of the upper jaw. And you, ca- you can't vomit during that or you're going to in, uh, introduce infections that would be life-threatening in a time before antibiotics. So he would sen- desensitize them to anything that would, might cause injury during the surgery. And again, that was something that was not being done by anyone else. And when anesthesia was finally uh, discovered, he was the first one to, to do it in Philadelphia and people did not agree. They That's, thought it was- I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> we're sort of out of time for this, although I'm yeah. sure the audience would like to hear more about <laughs> horrendous medical procedures, but one of the other things, just briefly, that I yeah. found so fascinating in the book was that like, he had this rival at the hospital who was like Mr. Old School. Yeah, and the And the old school guy, Miggs, was really against anesthesia. Yes. Which just seems like that would make the surgery so much harder to do. I can't believe there was resistance to anesthesia in the medical community. Yeah, they thought it was a satanic influence that robbed men of their will of reason. Uh, and... Miggs, in particular, was quite the bastard. He was the chair of obstetrics, and he did not believe in pain management for laboring women because he said the Bible said, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So he would teach generations of his students that when women would claw at their doctor asking for relief to just go to the kitchen and read and write in a different room until birth is imminent. So obviously he was not going to be a fan of... Of anesthesia in that Is sense. there anything in the modern medicine that we, we owe to Dr. Mooter? I mean, are there techniques or things that he did that we're actually still using today? Yeah, the Mooter flap surgery. When I talk about Mooter, most people know about oh, the Oh, the Mooter, Mooter flap surgery, sure. But surgeons know 
know about the Mütter flap surgery, essentially it was an early uh, form of skin grafting that transformed uh, people who were severely burned, which was a huge problem for women in the 19th century who wore many layers of constrictive clothing and cooked in front of open flame. It did not take a lot for their undercoats to catch fire and for them to be essentially trapped in a chimney of flames that would burn off their face and neck. Um, again, perfect for Hanukkah. Uh, if yeah. Nana is looking for a great read about yeah. 19th century medicine. But he, he, these women were hidden away, uh, did not see doctors at all. And throughout my research, I would find letter after letter of women writing him saying, I would rather die on your surgical table than continue to live as I do. And he found a way to transform their faces, which was uh, one of the first earliest parts of plastic surgery. And the whole story is in the book. He was an amazing man. Wow. Well, Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, <laughs> thank you very much for telling yeah. us about this stuff. Thank you. Thanks for being on Livewire. I I cannot recommend highly enough reading this book after 10 a.m. and before about 9 p.m. A book written by Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. It's called Dr. Mooder's Marvels. You are listening to Livewire, brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing, where authentic Belgian beers, environmental stewardship, and social responsibility all live together under one roof. That sounds like a lot, but it is an enormous roof, it turns out. More information over at newbelgium.com. We're talking about underdogs this hour. We were talking to an author about a surgery that helped people who in the 19th century were considered to be freaks. The thing is, that's not just in the 19th century. We know that there are some modern freaks still, and we thought maybe we could see if we could find some in our actual audience, and so we sent our Sean McGrath out searching. And Sean, you have... You've brought some folks back from the Alberta Rose Theater. Can you introduce us to these uh, freaks? I scoured the audience. I got these three freaks. Um, <laughs> now, this will be a little hard to do without visuals for our radio audience, so I'm gonna, just going to try to explain to the best of my ability the amazing sights you're about to witness. Okay. Um, this is uh, going to only be medium helpful, but I guess yeah. try to do your best. Well, um, these folks are getting the real show here at the Alberta Rose. Now, it's important to remember to treat these people like real human beings, okay? Um, just show some restraint. No gasping, no throwing fruit. Um, okay, first up is uh, this guy. I want to introduce you to Ryan Walker. Uh, hello. Hi. Hey. Hey there, Ryan. Um, Sean, he looks like a pretty normal dude. Oh, I know. that. That's what's so deceptive about him. Okay, Ryan, do me a favor, and please pull out your phone, and how about text your mom? Uh, okay, sure. Watch this. Oh, my God! Pretty much uh, looks like he's sending a text message. No, looks can be deceiving. Look again. That's a Nokia 3310. That is from 2002. Okay? He just pressed the number two like six times to type the word cab. Oh, my God. It's like torture watching him. I, I, I don't really send a lot of texts, so it's not oh really a Oh, my God. You're a freak. Okay. You're a freak. You're even more freaky than I thought, you freak. Freak. Uh, I'm giving that one a medium at best. Uh, do you have any God. other freaks for us, Sean? Look away. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is Sarah Fulton. Uh, okay. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, also does not look that freaky, Sean. Okay. Well, tell him what you told me. Okay, uh, well, um, my left breast is a definitive C cup, but my right's more of like a, a B and three quarters. Oh, my God, that's insane! <laughs> is that ah, insane? Oh, my God! Uh, actually, no, it's not at all. Almost all women have breasts of slightly different sizes, yeah. Sean, did you, like, find any actual freaks in the Alberta Rose Theater? Look away, she's a freak! Um, I'm giving you one more chance to produce an actual freak here, Sean. Okay, well, good, because this is... I'm saving the best for last. This is a piece de la resistance. Meet William. Hi. Hi there, William. Again, Sean, I'm not seeing anything freaky Okay, well, at all. I'm not going to ask him to undress again, but um, <laughs> that would feel like exploitation. But uh, tell Luke, William, what you told me. Uh, I don't have any tattoos. What?! How does that even happen? I don't know. Well, I, 
couldn't really think of anything that I'd want on my body for the rest of my life. Plus, I have this absorbed twin named Steven in my abdomen. <laughs> and I figure that sets me apart good enough. Wait, so. wait, 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 wait. Seriously, no tattoos? How do you even, like, can you find a job in this town? Yeah, I have a pretty normal job. What about, what about, what about the absorbed twin? Does it have any tattoos? No, Steven's really conservative. Oh so my he... God, shut up! Dude, no that tattoos. is so insane, Sean. Freaks! I have to say, Sean, you pulled this one out. Thank you. That was really good. First two, medium, but the last one I can't even begin to wrap my brain around William the Untattooed Man. Thank you so much to our freaks. Thank you, Sean Shoo. McGrath. That is... And now with his thoughts on underdogs, please welcome the author of Hiding from Salesman and The Sliding Glass Door, poet Scott Poole with Reflections by the Pool. This is called Notes from an Underdog, or... Being a poet is like trying to be a singer-songwriter in a one-man band, and all you know how to play is the theremin, which is like being good at the volume knob. I was accidentally buried yesterday. Yes, maybe I should have been more careful. I was taking a stroll through the graveyard and this coffin was just nestled there in the ground and you know it was one of those sleepy fall days where the sun is soft and slants in from the ride on a cool carpet of air. Maybe it's those leaves, the shuffling through the graveyard, the whispering that always turns me into baby says, just take a nap here before dinner time. Hey, I can't help it if somebody left the lid off. I can't leave this fluffy softness just lying around in a muddy graveyard. I've been writing poems all day and trying to come up with new metaphors for clouds. So many metaphors that it felt like each cloud was sticking a thousand white butts at me. And you'd be surprised how comfy a coffin is. I mean, some dead people really have it made. I imagine this is how lunch meat feels in between two pieces of soft white bread. I don't know how long I was there, but I woke up in the dark trying to roll over. I'm not that stupid. I had my cell phone. I knew where I was. You'd be amazed what great reception the dead get. Hi, honey. It's me. Yes, I'm at the Lone Fur. Oh, not again, she always says. <laughs> yep, I'm calling from the grave. It's the fresh dirt by the big oak near the road. Call me back if you can't find it. And then I wait, and the best part is always the wait. Snuggled inside the dark, listening for shovel taps. <laughs> knowing those who love you are on their way to bring you back. That was Scott Poole. You're listening to LiveWire. Uh, since 2004, we've been rising to the occasion and beating the odds with a combination of moxie, plucky determination, and also the hiring of Emilio Estevez as our hockey coach. Hey, if you're planning on being in Portland on December 13th, you ought to come by our show. It's going to be a holiday extravaganza. We've got comic Kurt Braunoller there, wild author Cheryl Strayed. They're making a movie with Reese Witherspoon based on that book. Justin Simeon, director of the film Dear White People will be here. Also, the author of Poking a Dead Frog, Mike Sachs, and music from Liz Weiss and more. We hope we can see you then. Sometimes I'm just saying this at this point in the show, but this really has been quite an hour. I mean it this time. Uh, what did we learn about underdogs? Sean McGrath? Well, I learned that I'm going to be in my 60s by the time I get racially profiled. Um, 2042 is when I get pulled over for no reason. And uh, I also learned that I, I shouldn't feel that much of a freak for wearing jeans with stirrups. They work. They don't ride up. 
Jason Rouse, announcer. Jason Rouse, you learn anything? I did. I also, I had no idea that I'd be living on Mars in 2042. I'm kind of looking forward to it. Um, I'm a little, you know, hesitant, but uh, I feel it's going to be a lot of fun. I think I'll do well on another planet. I think what I've cultivated will work <laughs> over there. Yeah. So, you know, I'll be good. I'll be in my 60s. I'll, I'll feel it, you know. I don't know if a lot of that stuff Hari said is actually true, but I'm glad you're prepared. Take a listen to this one more time, everybody. Give it up for Deep Sea Diver here on Livewire. That is Deep Sea Diver, and that is our show. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming out. Our thanks to our guests, 
Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, Hari Kondabalu, and Deep Sea Diver. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and a producer. Jim Brunberg is a producer as well. Ralph Huntley is our musical director. Our house band includes Jonathan Newsom, Paul Brainerd, and Louis Longmire. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone, guest writer Caitlin Kunkel, Scott Poole, and me. Our performers are Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by Neil Blake. Our stage management by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, Work for Art, the Oregon Community Foundation, and listeners like you find beautiful people. For more information about our show and how to become a member of LiveWire, visit livewireradio.org. And you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.